This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to everyone online as well. Day two of Sashin. And um, day two of talks. Talking about these uh, teachings, especially Kazan, Jokin, the co-founding ancestor of Soto Zen in Japan, who lived after Dogen, never met Dogen, but is still considered to be uh, our second or co-founder. I won't rehearse all that history again today, uh, but uh, just to remind you or to tell you if you weren't here. And I want to continue with the text, um, and I'm going to read a lot because not everyone who's online necessarily has this text, so kind of you have to forgive some tediousness of reading the text itself. So this talk is picking up uh, after the first section that we, first and second, it's actually the third section, as sectioned according to the translation that I circulated to those of you who were signed up for session. That section begins, we read this yesterday, the Buddha said, listening and thinking about it, about practice, about, about anything, <laughs> are like being shut out by a door. Zazen is like coming home and sitting at ease. And then Kazan says, this is true. <laughs> listening and thinking about it, views have not ceased and the mind is obstructed. This is why it's like being shut out by a door. True sitting puts all things to rest and yet penetrates everywhere. This sitting is like coming home and sitting at ease. And then we were going to pick up with the new part of the text. So Kazan goes on to talk about the five obstructions. Says being afflicted by the five obstructions arises from basic ignorance, and ignorance arises from not understanding your true nature. Zazen is understanding your true nature. Even if you were to eliminate the five obstructions, if you haven't eliminated basic ignorance, you have not yet realized yourself as the Buddhas and awakened ancestors. So as Dogen says in the uh, text that we just chanted, right, we are one Buddha and one ancestor. Kazan says, if you want to realize, to release, excuse me, I think we've all realized basic ignorance. If you want to release (laughs) basic ignorance, the essential key is to sit and practice the way. An old master said, and we don't know who this old master is either. An old master said, when confusion ceases, Clarity arises. When clarity arises, wisdom appears. And when wisdom appears, reality displays itself. So says Kazan, if you want to cease your confusion, you must cease involvement in thoughts of good or bad. Stop getting caught up in unnecessary affairs. A mind unoccupied together with a body free of activity is the essential point to remember. So when delusive attachments end, the mind of delusion dies out. When delusion dies out, the reality that was always the case 
manifests and you are always clearly aware of it. It is not a matter of extinction or of activity. So that's the opening. Actually, that's the whole section, uh, section three. So let's consider these five obstructions, which are sometimes also called the five coverings, right? So they obscure the mind. They obscure our true nature. Okamura Roshi says that these, he translates them as greed, anger or hatred, dullness, distraction, and doubt. (laughs) Those are the five coverings or obstructions. And they pair with the five desires, which are sometimes also brought up in the same thought. These arise when our sense organs come into contact with objects and we experience attachment to things, right? Things that are pleasant. Or if they're unpleasant, we want to avoid them. So the five desires can give rise to greed and also anger, right? They, they have this symbiotic relationship. Many teachers discuss abandoning these five desires and five hindrances or obstructions, including Nagarjuna, who we mentioned yesterday, the great Indian sage and philosopher. But these five obstructions, five hindrances, also appear in Dogen's account of his conversations between himself and his teacher, Ru Jing, concerning dropping off body and mind, which we are also hearing about constantly in this teaching of Keizan. Shinjin Datsuraku, dropping off body and mind. And this is what Ru Jing was saying all the time to his students, right? Why are you sleeping? Right? The important thing is to drop off body and mind. Not that way. <laughs> By falling asleep. Wish it was that easy. So in the conversations with Dogen, Ru Jing, his Chinese teacher, said that all descendants of Buddhas and ancestors first eliminate these five hindrances. And then the sixth hindrance, the sixth is ignorance, right? which is what Kazan is just talking about. Kazan identifies it as an essential thing to work with. It's fundamental to getting rid of the other five or dissolving them or abandoning them. When we talk about getting rid of, that doesn't really quite, I think, fit with the Zen attitude towards these things. We're not trying to get rid of anything, but maybe abandon or relinquish being stuck to them. Kazan also says that the ancestors, I'm sorry, Rujing also says that the ancestors the Zen ancestors, have not set up stages or classifications of practice, right? And we say this over and over again. I don't think sometimes anybody believes this, but, right, there's no beginner, there's no intermediate, there's no expert, there's no enlightenment. Practice and enlightenment are one thing in Zen, right? So there are no stages and no classifications of practice. Zen just famously points directly to the mind and directly to the way, so in this conversation, Ru Jing says, and this is Dogen's account, putting one's effort into the practice of just sitting and dropping off body and mind is the way to depart, I like that, to depart from the five coverings and the five desires. This is the only method of being free from them. There is absolutely none other. How can there be anything that falls into two or three? 
So when people start counting, you know, they're, they're enumerating other things other than the one thing that they're, they're pushing. And Okumura says that um, these six coverings are in their essence the three poisonous minds. Do you know what those are? Can you sing it with me? Greed, hate, hate, and delusion. That's it. Greed, hate, and delusion. So when Kazan says two or three, right, two or three, according to Okamura, he is referring to a passage in the Lotus Sutra, which claims there is only one Dharma vehicle, right? There's no, this is the pushing of this is the way, Zazen is the way, right? Directly pointing, direct experience, right? There's only one vehicle. There's not... Uh, two or three other things that you can do, right? Like first achieving some rank of, you know, stream enterer or a pracheka Buddha, a Buddha that practices only for their own self-liberation or a bodhisattva as a preliminary stage to being a Buddha, right? What Rujing says is that the zazen of such persons lacks compassion even if it frees its practitioner of the five coverings. So it's not, it's not enough just to abandon these states, right? abandon clinging. If it lacks compassion, it's not true practice. It's not true awakening to the truth of no separation. And it is not the zazen of Buddhas and ancestors. Right? This is pretty dogmatic. Right? So the zazen of Buddhas and ancestors is characterized by the vow to save all beings with great compassion. So Kazan is going to riff on this for a while. So Okumura quotes with approval a Japanese scholar writing about 10 or 15 years ago that Dogen's realization, his awakening, is, and this is a quote, a deep awareness of the fact that the existence of the self is not a personal possession of the self. The existence of the self is not a personal possession of the self. Right? What could that possibly mean? <laughs> and I think what he's saying is that realizing that you are big mind is not something that is for your benefit or that you yourself grasp. If you think, oh, I've got it, you're separating from it. Right? It's to close that gap so there is no I. Right? Or as Dogen himself says in Genjo Koan, to be verified by all things is to drop off the body and mind of the self and the body and mind of others. Right? There, is, there are no two things anywhere. So returning now from uh, our, the discussion between Rujing and Dogen back to the Zazen Yojinki, Kazan teaches, an old master said, when confusion ceases, this is I'm repeating here, Clarity arises, and when clarity arises, wisdom appears. And when wisdom appears, reality displays itself. And we could add the other wing, wisdom is one wing of awakening, the other wing is compassion. Without both, the bird does not fly. And again, if you want to cease your confusion, you must cease involvement in thoughts of good or bad. Right? Get... Don't get caught up in unnecessary affairs, that means activities. And a mind unoccupied with such things 
together with a body free of activity, which doesn't mean you're not doing anything, but you're free of what you're doing, is the essential point to remember. Okay. So now Dogen, uh, sorry, Kazan, it's hard for me to not say Dogen. When Kazan, now Kazan kind of gets down to brass tacks and talks about what is a body free of activity and a mind unoccupied. And he advises, and you may have feelings about this, I do when I read this list. He now says what you should avoid doing. So it's a long list. (laughs) Avoid getting caught up in arts and crafts. (laughs) Prescribing medicines and fortune telling. Stay away from songs and dancing. Arguing and babbling, (laughs) fame and gain. Composing poetry can be an aid in clarifying the mind, (laughs) but but don't get caught up in it. The same is true for writing and calligraphy. This is the superior precedent for practitioners of the way and the best way to harmonize the mind. I'm just going to read the whole thing, and then we can uh, unpack it a little. Don't wear luxurious clothing or dirty rags. Luxurious clothing gives rise to greed, and then the fear that someone will steal something. This is a hindrance to practitioners of the way. Even if someone offers them to you, to refuse is the excellent tradition from ancient times. If you happen to have luxurious clothing, don't be concerned with it. If it's stolen, don't bother to chase after it or regret its loss. Old dirty clothes should be washed and mended. Clean them thoroughly before putting them on. If you don't take care of them, you could get sick and cold and hinder your practice. Although we shouldn't be too anxious about bodily comforts, inadequate clothing, food, and sleep are known as the three insufficiencies and will cause our practice to suffer. And then he's got some dietary recommendations. Don't eat anything alive, hard or spoiled. Such impure foods will make your belly churn and cause heat and discomfort of body-mind, making your sitting difficult. I kind of think like he's like my mother. (laughs) Don't indulge in rich foods. Not only is this bad for body-mind, it's just greed. You should eat to promote life, so don't fuss about taste. Also, if you sit after eating too much, you will feel ill. Whether the meal is large or small, wait a little before sitting. Monks should be moderate in eating and hold their portions to two-thirds of what they can eat. All healthy foods, sesame, wild yams, and so on, can be eaten. Essentially, you should harmonize body-mind. So this is not so different from what Dogen says, right, about, you know, eat and drink moderately, right, you know, cast aside all affairs, way to uh, order your clothing when you're sitting and so on, but it's really specific, right, really, really specific. So let me ask you, what do you think he's doing here? Calligraphy and poetry are Zen arts practiced by all the masters. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he just wants you to spend all your time practicing Zen. Actually, he says don't overindulge in that either. (laughs) (laughs) But can't you practice Zen by doing arts and crafts? 
Well, you know, if you look at Dogen himself, he was a master calligrapher, right. and he wrote poetry, yeah. right? But apparently he didn't sing and dance, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so once some, somebody got, finally got fed up with lectures that Katagiri was giving, some woman couldn't contain herself anymore, and she just sort of stood up and said, Katagiri Roshi, Katagiri Roshi, you know, did, did, he, did, did Dogen enjoy sake? Did he ever look at a pretty girl? <laughs> you know, and... Katagiri apparently said, Dogen gives you no candy. <laughs> Dogen gives you no candy. He doesn't give you any goodies, like, right? You know, so. No hibiscus tea. That's how Katagiri dealt with that. So I think the, the key, for me anyway, I mean, some of these things, right? Fortune telling's fun, you know? <laughs> If you're a doctor, you prescribe medicine. That's what you do. And, and they wouldn't say don't treat illness. So, you know, I think it's more don't get caught by these things. And don't take them as, uh, how to put it? Yeah, don't, don't cling to them. Be free of them. Practice them, but be, but be free of them. And any activity you do from the, from the place of enlightenment, which is the place of zazen, according to our teaching, is already free of activity. It's activity that's free of the idea of I am doing something. Mm-hmm. Right? I am doing something. And that can apply to anything. But there but there are also ways in which like we can be really, you know, proud of our fancy clothes and we can also be really fr- proud of our rags as well, right? You can kind of make a, uh, a, a overly virtuous display of poverty. So again, don't get caught in extremes, right? Neither neither, you know, there are some t- teachers I know have entire libraries of okasas, and they change them five times <laughs> during a retreat. You know, every time they come out, they're wearing a different okasa. I'm sure they all have reasons for doing things like that. It's inspiring, you know, to see a teacher, a, a highly esteemed teacher, in a fancy okasa. Right? But one hopes that they're also free of the notion that you know I'm special. Right? It's a skillful means. And on the other hand, I know people who have lost their robes and they're pretty upset, right? The luggage gets lost, no. you know, going to Europe and you lose your, you know, you can't find your okesa and that's the one your teacher gave you and you're like, ah, has not yet happened to me. I hope it never does. <clears throat> but, you know, then your sangha sews you another one or you sew yourself another one or you buy one from Japan. <laughs> Gasp. Gasp. <laughs> Happens. But I think this idea, you know, his last comment in this string of do's and don'ts, what sounds like do's and don'ts, is harmonize body-mind, right? Harmonize body-mind. There's a more precise way of of talking about harmonizing body-mind, which is harmonizing the mind and breath, right? So focusing on this essential function of our bodies that we are most aware of. Our bodies are keeping us alive in various ways all the time, but we tend not to be so aware of the other functions unless, you know, your heart is pounding in your chest or your stomach is growling, right? Mostly we're aware of our breath. So that prompts a comment from Cohen Franz, whom I was quoting yesterday. He has written a series of essays on uh, Zazen uh, Yojinki. He says, disharmony of mind and breath is the disharmony of the mind with what's happening now. So you might check in with your breath and uh, see if that is true for you. 
he says, these are juxtaposed, right? The disharmony of mind and breath is juxtaposed with the disharmony of the mind with what's happening, what's actually taking place. Multiple things are happening at once, says Cohen. It's the whole organism. It's not a chicken and egg kind of thing. It's not just breathing. It's not just the mind. It's the present. And when things are not on the same page, you will go all sorts of places. Maybe you already have over the last two days. So we are now in the part of the text where detailed instructions are offered by Kazan, and they are much more detailed and practical in a way than Dogen's. So this is what I was alluding to yesterday. Kazan says, when you are sitting in Zazen, do not prop yourself up against a wall. A meditation brace, there were such things, like, you know, you could sort of hold you up, um, or a screen. Also, do not sit in windy places or high exposed places, as this can cause illness. Sometimes when you are sitting, you might feel hot or cold. Comfort or ease, stiff or loose, heavy or light, sometimes startled. These sensations arise through disharmonies of mind and breath energy. Harmonize your breath in this way. So here's a practical instruction. Open your mouth slightly. Allow long breaths to be long and short breaths to be short. And it will harmonize naturally. Follow it for a while until a sense of awareness arises and your breath will be natural. After this, continue to breathe through the nose. So this is a very specific instruction. I'm not sure it's quite the (laughs) cure-all that he seems to present it as. Maybe it was for him. But you might try this. Breathe a few times when you sit down through your mouth. And then once once your breath has settled and you're no longer aware so much of I'm breathing this way, I'm breathing that way, settle into breathing through your nose. He goes on to say, the mind may feel as if it were sinking or floating. It may seem dull or sharp. Sometimes you can see the outside the room. Okay, this is now the the funky stuff that sometimes happens in Zazen. You can see the insides of the body. You'll see the forms of Buddhas or Bodhisattvas. Sometimes you may believe that you have wisdom and now thoroughly understand all the sutras and commentaries. These extraordinary conditions are diseases (laughs) that arise through disharmony of mind and breath. When this happens, sit placing the mind in the lap. When the mind sinks into dullness, raise attention above your hairline, up here somewhere, or before your eyes. When the mind scatters into distraction, place attention at the tip of the nose or at the tanden. Do you all know what the tanden is? It's the lower abdomen, which is the uh, energetic center of the body in Chinese and Japanese thought and medicine. Right? This is where the chi is. If you do tai chi or qigong, it's down there. Right? Is that hara too? Hara. Yeah, it's Japanese. It's hara. Uh. Same thing. After this, rest attention in the left palm. That's the one that you know is uh, usually the one that's on top, right? When we're sitting in the meditation mudra. Sit for a long time and do not struggle to calm the mind, and it will naturally be free of distraction. 
So, you know, in these things, in this list, he, you know, he mentions things that we are probably all, you know, we've all experienced in one way or another. And he prescribes things, and I feel it's kindly, you know, rather than do this, do that. It's not quite so much like your mother. I hear my mother when she's telling me about what to eat. Um, but, you know, things like this are, are really interesting, specific practice instructions. And the list includes both, you know, kind of mundane, mundane things like distraction or dullness or sleepiness, right? We all have that, especially sitting here hour after hour. But there are also things that we think are special, frequently, like seeing Buddhas or having some insight into the teachings. You know, he says, don't be distracted by any of that. Just return to your bare experience. Don't fabricate anything. It's a little disappointing, but that's what he says. He goes on, although the ancient teachings are a long-standing means to clarify the mind, this is the part about don't overdo it, right? Do not read, write about, or listen to them obsessively, <laughs> because such excess only scatters the mind, right? Generally, anything that wears out body-mind causes illness, right? So that could be too much sitting. Mm-hmm. Don't sit where there are fires, floods, or bandits. (laughs) They might take your okesa. By the ocean, near bars, brothels, where widows or virgins live. Now we get the sexist part. (laughs) Or near where courtesans sing and play music. Don't live near kings, ministers, powerful or rich families, people with many desires. Those who crave name and fame or those who like to argue meaninglessly. He's just (laughs) rephrasing what he's already told us. Now this is fun. Although large Buddhist ceremonials and the constructions of large temples might be good things, one who is committed to practice should not get involved. Don't tell Todd Cornett about this, (laughs) our fundraiser. (laughs) Don't be fond of preaching the Dharma, as this leads to distraction and scattering. Don't preach, don't teach. Don't be delighted by huge assemblies or run after disciples. Don't try to study and practice many different things. So these are admonitions also for people who call themselves teachers. Right? Don't delight in a large assembly. Don't chase after students. And it sometimes seems to me things like this, and he's not done yet, by the way, um, seem contrary, at least in part, to the practice of equanimity, right? Why not sit where it's cold or windy? Why not practice among kings and bars, right? Be an interesting neighborhood. But I actually think he's just trying to support our practice by warning against excess of all kinds and potential distractions. He's not saying if you find yourself in such a place, you know, flee. He's just saying maybe you don't need to go there. Maybe you don't need to choose that place, right? And he's also warning against... I think scattering our attention, right, to point out extremes and like being busy doing too many things, right? Fortune telling and calligraphy, <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe uh, practicing this kind of Buddhism and that kind of Buddhism, right? Doing this sort of body practice and that sort of body practice. You may all be kind of aware of, the, of this phenomenon of having too many good things to do. Okay, do not sit where it is too bright or too dark, too cold or too hot, right? That might all be the same Zendo to some of us, right? It's too cold, it's too dark, it's too hot in here. Why don't they turn the fans on? Why don't they turn the fans off, right? 
do not sit where pleasure seekers or horrors live. Go, go and stay in a monastery where there is a true teacher. Go deep into the mountains and valleys. Practice kinyin by clear waters and verdant mountains. Basically, paradise. <laughs> clear the mind by a stream or under a tree. Observe impermanence without fail, and you will keep the mind that enters the way. Right. So this does sound like running away. But I think before we get hung up on mountains, valleys, monasteries, and so forth, we can remember also what Dogen says. Right? Here is the place. Right? All of those things, all of those places, may be conducive to the kind of practice that's it's some sort of ideal. But the place is now. The moment is now, wherever you are. Right? It's just that nature may be more you know, conducive to sitting and monasteries surely are, because that's what they make you do. (laughs) Okay. The mat should be well padded so that you can sit comfortably. The practice place should always be kept clean. Burn incense and offer flowers to the Dharma protectors, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and your practice will be protected. Put a statue of a Buddha, Bodhisattva, or Arhat on the altar, and demons of distraction will not overwhelm you. So the Dharma protectors are all the figures in a temple um, that guard the various uh, places, facilities, and activities. So we have Dharma protectors for the kitchen and the ovens um, for the temple gate. If we had a temple gate, we would have a a protector out there. The bathhouse, if we had one, you may have noticed the little pictures outside the bathrooms. And, And there's a peg for you to hang your rakasu on if you have one, that's a dharma protector. We have a toilet protector in Zen and in Buddhism. Right? Um, <clears throat> we have them for the zendo, the study hall, and so on. Right? And you, in this way, in a place like this, you're always in a monastery, and you can do this in your own home. Right? That's part of why it's encouraged to have an altar in your own home with, a, with at least one figure on it. Right? They can proliferate really quickly, by the way, once you get the hang of this, right? Oh, it's an, here's, a, here's another statue I need. So now Kazan turns to what distinguishes true Zazen after all of these, you know, kind of old lady <laughs> types of <laughs> you know, grandmotherly mind uh, operating, you know, here to give us these specific uh, admonitions. What distinguishes true Zazen, true practice, from self-serving, self-saving, right? Because we're all in here on account of our suffering, and our first thought is, I've got to do something, <laughs> right? What happens beyond that? What, what should happen beyond that? He says, remember always great compassion and dedicate the limitless power of Zazen to all living beings. Do not become arrogant, conceited, or proud of your understanding of the teachings. That is the way of those outside the way, and of usual people. That sounds kind of arrogant right there. (laughs) (laughs) Maintain the vow to end afflictions, the vow to realize awakening, and just sit. And he says again, do nothing at all. Don't do anything. Don't do anything does not mean, you know, like to do something 
called not doing or non-doing, right? If we're doing non-doing, <laughs> we're doing something, right? So can you harmonize those things? The, the doing of non-doing, get rid of the doing, be non-doing, right? Take your eye out of it. He says, this is the way to study Zen. And then he has a few more tips. Wash your eyes and feet, keep body-mind at ease and deportment in harmony. Shed worldly sentiments and do not become attached to sublime feelings about the way, right? Don't get all giddy about what about Zen. Though you should not begrudge the teachings. This is where this famous thing is comes from, by the way, in Zen, that we are not proselytizers, right? Though you should not begrudge the teachings, do not speak of it unless you are asked. And if someone asks, keep silent three times. <laughs> if still they ask from their heart, then give the teachings. If you wish to speak ten times, keep quiet nine. It's as if moss grew over your mouth, or like a fan in winter. Right? Just remain quiet. A wind bell hanging in the air. This is how he tells us to be. Indifferent to the direction of the wind. This is how people of the way are. So this wind bell is also an image in a, a, another chant we're going to do, the Makahanya Haramitsu, not to be confused with the Makahanya Haramita Shingyo, <clears throat> two different things. The Makahanya Haramitsu is Dogen's essay on the Prajnaparamita teachings and specifically on the Heart Sutra. It is about the Heart Sutra. And in it, at the end of it, he quotes a poem written by Rujing, which is about the wind bell. So Kazan's very aware of this wind bell image from Dogen, uh, from actually from Rujing through Dogen. The whole body is a wind bell. Like an empty mouth, we're hanging in the wind, right? But we're really not supported by anything. We're just, and we're unconcerned about the, the velocity of the wind, the direction of the wind, and like an empty mouth hanging in space is what Rujing says. Just responding to whatever conditions appear. And at the end he says, you know, just like a wind bell, and I would love to know how the Chinese sounds, dingling ding dong, <laughs> right? It's actually, that's what it says. Right, and I think we're chanting this tomorrow, tomorrow morning. This prompted someone to say after Sashin to uh, my original teacher, Josho, is that what it comes down to in the end? Ding dong, ding a ling dong? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> so finally, Kazan says, do not use the Dharma for your own profit. Do not use the way to try to make yourself important. This is the most important point to remember. I think that's the second of the most important points to remember. <laughs> so, don't forget the Dharma protectors. And, you know, it's not about you, but it's all about you, because everything is fundamentally only you. That's what we are trying to realize. Thank you very much. And uh, if there are questions, comments, objections, uh, so I'll start with, I saw him first. <laughs> yes. Eric. Oh, I thought that was someone behind me. No, uh, it's you. <laughs> my question for you is um, if you could just kind of give a brief summary of the, the single vehicle uh, that you mentioned, and then also how do we, um, how do we, 
have like faith and invest in that uh, while also honoring like other traditions? I think you know he's not necessarily dishonoring other traditions. He, he obviously thinks that our tradition is the most direct way, and and he wants us, I think, to practice that wholeheartedly because he because it's the for people who of Zen, it's the direct path. And I have to say, when I first started studying Buddhism, I was always sort of attracted to the Zen aesthetic, right? You know, it just seemed like fit my personality. And, but then when I heard, you know, like, oh yeah, in this lifetime, right now, it's like, that's good, I like this, right? I'm a, I'm a kind of person who's in a hurry, so let's get this done, right? Why wait, is the way I felt. So I was attracted to the teachings of Zen, in part because, you know, my own karmic proclivities. But it depends on where you are, who you are, right? Your, your karmic, I won't say burden, but you know, your life, how your life is unfolding wherever it is, whenever it is, who you are. And better to practice than not to practice. Although it is sometimes said, you know, if you don't have a true teacher or if you go really astray in the teachings, better not to study them. So there is a big raging debate, you know, in this age of the internet when people can read anything online and, you know, extensive commentaries and lots and lots of discussion lists, people talking about the, you know, Dharma teachings. It's possible to really be pulled one way or the other in a, in a direction that is, shall we say, I don't know, inaccurate, right? Um, by people who are, you know, everybody's an instant expert, right? Lots of people are teaching meditation after taking one, you know, uh, weekend seminar, and then they start teaching meditation. You know, having groups in their homes, and so I think he's saying, don't be a dabbler. <laughs> and we think we have the way, and we think that the, the that true zazen is the zazen of the Buddhas and ancestors. It is what the historical Shakyamuni Buddha practiced. Right? That that that, and that is the way to enter directly. You know, the ocean of awareness is what he calls it. So I don't think we have to diss other people's traditions. They're very deep and rich, and Zen is built on them, right? Zen is built on them. This one vehicle thing, he's saying that this is that our vehicle is the one vehicle, right? It's the one way. And there are these other so-called vehicles, right? Mahayana, which, is, which already has built into it a certain arrogance, the, the, the great vehicle, but it really just means the big vehicle, right? It's the bus that everybody's on. It, it includes everyone. Right? And then there is this somewhat derogatory term, Hinayana, the lesser vehicle, which is now we tend to refer to as the way of the elders or the, or the Theravada way, which is, you know, the older form of Buddhism, the, the original form, shall we say, of I- individual mendicant monks, you know, wandering on their own, Right, pursuing their own practice and coming together in the rainy season and receiving teachings. So they weren't totally solitary and unconcerned with anyone else, but that was the original, you know, kind of wandering uh, person. And in some some ways, Zen replicated parts of this because monks would stay put for a while and then they'd go off. Right, uh, the the word for a monk is unsui. It's clouds and water, right, with no fixed abode but practicing for the benefit of all beings. That's the piece that is not so stressed in the other, ve- the, the so-called lesser vehicle or small vehicle, right? 
So that's a quick answer. Does it seem to maybe tie in um, with the other ideas you were talking about, um, about kind of not being spread in too many I guess, directions or interests? And you mean not to study these other traditions? Or no, 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 no. Like, uh, like just like whatever you do, kind of like focus. Oh, focus. Focus. I guess. You know, I, the, here's, here's another way of looking at it. I think that especially when we're um, starting out or maybe in the middle of our practice journey, there's a real value in learning something thoroughly. Mm. And then you can kind of decide whether there are other things that you want to incorporate. Because religion has a lot, I mean, I'll come to call it religion, has a lot invested in looking like we've got it, we're the only ones who've got it, right? Salvation is here, it's nowhere else. <laughs> and also, right, you know, like, this is handed down from Dogen, right? And it, it, it doesn't vary, and it's the truth, and... You know, there's, there's, it never changes, right? All religions cloak themselves in this uh, sort of sense of conservatism, right? But if you look, if you draw a line from Buddha to Dogen and beyond that, the Dharma just keeps unfolding, right? If, if people are truly practicing and, and not, you know, deluded or insane, there are some crazy people out there. I can name one, but I won't, but who's not alive any longer, committed suicide actually. You know, there are people who are really, um, you know, mentally ill and think they're enlightened, and they and they teach and they do harm. Right? Mm-hmm. That can happen. Mm-hmm. Right? That can happen. And I'm not even talking about ethical transgression here. I'm just talking about someone who's sick, mm-hmm. right? But is charismatic, and you know, people follow. This is how you get doomsday cults. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of going far afield. But what I'm saying is. That, you know, that we are in a, after 2,500 years, we have arrived where we are with Zen, having, un, we say, like to say, unfolds the Dharma. And then there are these three turnings of the wheel, you know, the three kind of, I don't want to say phases, but three teachings, right? And the third one is where we are, or maybe even the fourth one now in our modern world. So it doesn't stay still. It's not static. And, and as Buddhism traveled, through different cultures, it changed, right? That's why I'm sitting here and not some, and why men and women are sitting together, mm-hmm. right, in this room, mm-hmm. and why lay people are practicing like this, because in, in many countries and many times, lay people <coughs> supported the monks and got the merit for feeding the monks and offering them temples and things like that, but they didn't practice the teachings. So nothing stays the same, not even Buddhism. But it's an unfolding of an essential understanding of reality, an experience of reality that keeps unfolding. It's limitless, just like reality. Does that help? Perfectly. Okay. Sure. <laughs> yes, Jose. And sorry, Pat, I forgot. That's okay. 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 Come back. <laughs> yes. Uh, so with the caveat that words, pictures, and logic uh, instantly shut the gate, um, today... <laughs> We're harmonizing body and mind, and yesterday we're dropping body and mind. Mm. Well, like I said, maybe body, mind, breath is what we're harmonizing. But, yeah, good point. Um, Dropping body, mind. Sloughing off body, mind. What do you think? Is it just a conundrum? When I try to think, it just shuts the gate. That's probably a good sign. Well, I think... That as we sit and we harmonize our body and mind, 
we close the gap between body and mind. Right? So that's the, I think Jess asked a related question yesterday about heart-mind, right? Where we don't, there isn't really a distinction between heart and mind in the character that, that expresses that. It's the same character for heart and mind, heart-mind, right? And body-mind, which is Dogen's thing and Ryujing's thing, I think is expressing the same thing. There's no body apart from mind. There's no mind apart from body. They're one thing. Once you, when you realize that, you can drop it, <laughs> right? Then you can drop it because you don't need to think about it. You don't need to be concerned with it. It, it just falls away. And the bodies and minds of others also drop away. And I think that's an important coda. It's not just you, right? Somehow losing or dropping or sloughing off this thing that we think of as two things, but it's also not... It's the, it's the realization that there are no other bodies and minds either. They drop away at the same time. Right? So, that's when we say there's no separation. Right? Someone once asked some guru, like, you know, how, how should we treat others? And he said, there are no others. <laughs> right? There are no others. It's only you. But that doesn't mean the little you. Right? It's realizing this one Buddha body that occupies every, that there's no space for anything else. Right? That's my off-the-cuff answer to that one. <laughs> try, try it out for yourself while you're sitting. Yeah. I have a question about the top of page two. Okay. In the handout. Yeah. <clears throat> so the sentence at the top of page two says, uh, so it is said, a person comes and goes, lives and dies, as the imperishable body <laughs> of the four elements and five aggregates. And given the fact that there's a lot of fives going on, uh, you know, but I, I generally associate the five aggregates as eyes, ears, mouth, you know, nose, tongue, body, mind, uh, with the uh, Object, you know, subject, object. Subject, object, yeah, right. But here, this particular sentence is imperishable. Yeah, the imperishable body of the four elements, which are like the the alchemical elements, earth, air, fire, water, right, which is what everything is made of in, you know, ancient thought, very widespread ancient thought. And then, yeah, the five skandhas, which we, we are told are really not us. They're not, you know, who we really are, right? So... It seems like a contradiction, and in the same way that you know, there's this uh, teaching that Buddha nature is imperishable; it's eternal, right? Nothing's eternal. <laughs> we're told over and over again, everything changes, and there is nothing that has independent self, right? But I think that the, maybe the key to this is that you know, maybe the well, there are two possibilities. One is little glib. The glib one is. Uh, impermanence is permanent, right? It's the one thing that you can depend on. Not to change is change, right? That's one thing. But the other thing is that, you know, and he says this later, there are no, um, without sentient beings, there's no consciousness. I mean, there's no awareness, right? Without sentient beings, there's no awareness. And so we have these five skandhas, we can't. We should not be fooled into thinking that my five skandhas are some kind of imperishable me or permanent me. It's going to come back. It's going to 
live forever. It's going to be reincarnated or whatever you want to say. Um, but without the five skandhas, there's no awareness, right? And there's no life. So don't be fooled by the five skandhas. So it's like similar to Big Bind or, you know, there's a yeah. capital, you know, similar to that, right? Yeah, and we would, and without... You know, without being able to talk about the Dharma, how would we ever know the teachings, right? We'd all just kind of wander around going, you know, <laughs> what's happening here? Right? So words are very tricky and really a problem, and they're not, the, they're not the meaning, right? We keep hearing the meaning is not in the words, yet it, you know, it, it responds to the inquiring impulse, right? The Jewel Mirror Samadhi says that. So all of these, you know, it's like you have to keep kind of turning it over or turning it inside out, right? You said no skandhas, no awareness. Yes? Uh, yeah, no aliveness. Okay. But still Buddha activity without these. You can have no skandhas, no aliveness, and still Buddha activity exists. The whole universe is Buddha activity. Yeah. So like, you know, rocks and uh, Buddhas and pebbles yeah. and tiles and yeah. walls are right. Buddha activity. Yeah. Right? So, so it's still... But, a, but awareness depends on aliveness. Yeah. And, and on some level, you know, when we say, you know, all of these things are happening for the sake of grasses and trees, fences and walls, tiles and pebbles, it's also that that's... Everything is mind. Right? Pat... You still have oh, watching. I was just going to say, well, I thought everything was mine. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> no fortune telling. <laughs> yeah, Rich? Um, thank you for that talk. That was great. Um, I wanted to ask this question. Um, so when I read the... That, or when you said you should harmonize body mind, I want to I want to kind of say the M word that we don't often don't say in Zen. So brace yourselves. Mindfulness. Um, I think it's mindfulness <laughs> that you're talking about. Um, and um, I know that that's not always what we talk about, but I think that he he then goes on to talk about breath, you know, breathing, and then the instructions for avoiding certain things in certain situations and it all sounds like a variation of mindfulness teachings which are like guard your sense gates from exposure to harmful things you know Thich Nhat Hanh talked about that a lot and so um, and it feels like when you talk about dropping off body and mind you're saying drop off your attachment to all those things those small minded things and then guard your get, guard your sense gates from being exposed to these things that will drag you back into the hindrances or the obstructions, or being sort of lost and confused. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's like you can just walk down the street without your headphones in, right, and not really uh, thinking about anything. And if you look around and become aware of what's going on around you, there's a lot of distraction, right? You know, there are people on their phones and driving, and eating, and, you know, all at once, right? And they're scattered. And so I think that's that kind of instruction, like, do one thing, or be, you know, be aware, or don't do those things, right? 
when we have instructions about sitting down to eat or drink, it's pointing in that direction of, you know, non-scatteredness, right? Um, and I don't know about you, but it takes me, if I'm on retreat, it takes days for the last conversations I had or the last music I heard to fade in my mind, especially music, right? It's like their weird lyrics come up, little, you know, little little ditties, um, jingles, oh God, the jingles. You know. um, and just, you know, it's like Radio Free Choro sitting here. <laughs> and so, yeah, guarding your sense gates, if you don't listen to music, right, you're not, you're not going to have that. And I think I was several weeks into my time at Tassajara and the music finally stopped because we weren't listening, we were not supposed to listen to music at all. Not even on headphones, right? And it's also learning how to let go. When you that have that object in your mind, like a song, a ditty or something, and you don't attach to it. You don't you let you open the hand of thought, so to speak, and let go of it. Don't try to cling it cling to it in any way, like try to make it go away by being averse to it. Yeah. Or uh, grasp it because you, you, you enjoy it, right? Either way is you, you get caught. You get right? caught, right. Um, and so in the so um, going to a monastery or going to the mountains or whatever is like clearing the ground, right? Because yeah. you're not going to hear music. <laughs> you're not going right. to... No one's going to come and say, hey, let's dance, right? <laughs> you know? They might say, let's right. do kinhin, but they're not going to tell you, let's <laughs> dance, right? You skit maybe... Night. Right. Skit night. And skit it night. seems like that is a very, you know... Like we, part of this is like this kind of restraint that he's talking about. Yeah. He's talking about some sort of restraint. It's like training. Restrain your... Your, your sense, your, your normal activity of like trying to get stuff and do stuff and think a certain way, or you know, like he's it's it training. Like that's a very zen, zen kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a discipline. It's training, and it is it is conducive to awakening. That's that's part of it. Um, but I also think that you know this is the bodhisattva vow is to keep returning and to and to go through the hell realms, right? You know, it's right. like. So we don't, we don't abandon beings, even while we train, right. you know, in these skillful methods, right. right? It's so that we can fulfill our bodhisattva vow, not so I can remain pure and I can save my own skin, right? It, it might right. do that. You might, you might feel better and maybe you'll be more skillful. That's why I also like his moderation in things like eating and temperatures and all the rest of it. It's like... If you're just increasing your suffering and distraction, like I'm starving, I'm, you know, I'm sweating. Of course, we sit with all of that, <laughs> right? We sit when we're hungry, we sit when we're cold, we sit when we're hot. So it kind of works both ways. It's like, yes, we'll try to provide conditions for you to be okay. And then it's up to you to deal with what comes up, right? right? right. The teacher likes yeah, it cold. <laughs> the teacher likes it hot. The teacher right. likes the fans on. Ah, uh, the teacher. If we didn't have this person setting this plans, <laughs> I'd be so much better. <laughs> yeah, and Tassahara, you know, the only person who can touch the lights is the Eno, <laughs> right, who is instructed exactly how much light, right, when to turn them on. It's like nobody else even goes near the thermostat or the... It's like you just accept what you're offered. The windows are open. They mostly stay open. It's it's uh, it's an, it's interesting because you just get to see your mind come up over and over again. Right? I hate this. <laughs> I hate this. But isn't that what mindfulness is about? Returning to the present moment with whatever is happening, whether yeah. it's the, you know it's cold in here or it's hot in here or you know, it's windy or 
whatever. Yeah, but, but you, you know, know to keep coming back to your how you're responding, how you're. It is right. How you're, sure. And remember you know, also that, uh, uh, and then this will be the last comment. The um, what was his name? Sankey Dillo, who was here in August, who taught about bodyfulness, right? Which I think was a nice way of turning a little bit mm -hmm. that mindfulness into a fuller experience right. of awareness, right? Not yeah. just in your head, what we think of as our heads. Yeah. I just want to remind everybody there will be no talk tomorrow, so you online folks, don't, don't tune in, right? There'll be, uh, the next one will be on Tuesday, Tuesday and Wednesday at this time. Thank you for, for joining, and thank you all for your questions. And let's do the after lecture change.